Matthew chapter 11. We're going to get a little bit of a running head start. We'll begin with verse 1. We read that it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John heard in prison, and John has been in prison roughly 10 months to about a year at this juncture, when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And we noted last Sunday that John is in a bit of a dark spot. He's in a tough place. He's in prison for speaking truth to power. It's a difficult journey. A, a man like John to be imprisoned. Again, for righteousness sake. And he's dealing with a bit of doubt, I think admittedly. Jesus, uh, you're not doing the things that I'm expecting you to be doing as the Messiah. You're operating in kind of a different way. Are you really the Messiah or do we look for another? And John is dealing with this real thing. Uh, for further commentary, I just refer you back to last Sunday's uh, Bible study. But verse 4, Jesus answered these disciples and, and he said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel, the good news, preached to them. And then the exhortation, Jesus concludes, verse 6, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. John, again, in a, in a difficult spot, grappling with his faith, against a man so sure of Jesus, a man that witnessed, you know, upon Jesus' baptism, a voice coming from heaven, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased to see the, the, the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. I mean, John knew he was sure, but 10 months in prison, it's a challenge. He sends this request, and, and the answer that Jesus gives is, is it's brilliant, but at the same time, it's, it's difficult still. Because Jesus doesn't fully answer John's question. Instead, he just points to what he's doing. And in, and in some regards, it's, it's as though he's saying to John, John, I know I'm not operating. I know I'm not doing the things you expected. But this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm acting. So you have to make a decision. Are you going to be offended that I'm not working the way you want me to be working? Or will you trust me? Will your faith be sure? And then we're told, verse 7, is where we kind of pick up things, that as they, these disciples, departed, Jesus, he begins to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? I love that first description of John. Jesus, again, the disciples leave. He turns to those that are there. And about John, he has some things to say. First of which is about his character and his integrity. John is not a reed shaken by, I mean, John was, had tenacity. And he was strong. Amazing in the context of what's just happened. The question he's just asked, how Jesus affirms him. Yeah, John's having a moment. But he's not a reed shaken. He's not, he's not 
blown around by, by the whims of culture. John spoke truth. He stood for truth. And he's being persecuted for truth. And so Jesus, turning to the multitudes, he, he makes this wonderful declaration. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. John, not a man of, of natural, normal comforts, man that wore camel skin and a leather belt and lived in the wilderness and ate locusts. A man in the wilderness, grit and grind. John, what did you expect to see? A man shaken? No, not John. A man tethered to worldliness, comforts? No, not John. But what did you go out to see, Jesus asks. A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. And then Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Again, amazing affirmations of John. What did you go out to see? Reed shaken by the wind? No, a man in soft clothing? No, you came to see a prophet. Jesus affirming uh, John's calling and his ministry. A unique prophet in the sense that he's a prophet who was prophesied of. Malachi saying that, that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah, a, a man sent to prepare the way. John, unique of all the prophets, for he was prophesied of. Jesus makes this declaration that of those born of women, which would include everyone, <laughs> there has not risen one greater than John. And then he adds, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus pivots ever so slightly here, saying, John, John is, is the man. I mean, up until this juncture, no one born of women is greater than he. Now, I will admit that when it comes to the kingdom, John is but the least. And what Jesus is saying, and we understand this within the greater context of the gospel narrative, that for those that are born again, those that have been filled with the Holy Spirit, those who have, have seen the cross and the resurrection, well, we have a greater status, not to say that that diminishes John, but at this point, John is not born again. John has not been filled with the Holy Spirit as the believers. He hasn't been redeemed and justified uh, before the Father. He hasn't been declared righteous. He's a great man, a good man, a righteous man, a man of nobility and character. But of those in the kingdom, he is the least. Until, of course, he sees these things for himself. Now we get to verse 12. And Jesus makes a, a, an interesting statement. He says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. <laughs> Let me reread that. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Let me begin by affirming 
that this is a complicated verse. In fact, you can listen to a lot of Bible commentary on this particular verse. You can read commentaries, and you're going to find opinions all over the map. It's true, and we should affirm that. Um, No one really has this verse particularly cornered or nailed down. It's complex. Um, That being said, let let me say what the verse doesn't say. Let me affirm that. There are some who try to take this verse and they try to twist it into the presentation of of a believer's attitude. The attitude that that we should have regarding the kingdom. Yes, the kingdom will face opposition, fierce opposition, violent opposition. And in response to that, there should be a tenacity among those within the kingdom to fight back, to stand resolved. We can see a little bit of that in regards to John the Baptist. And, and, and John's tenacity in the face of persecution. That being said, I, I don't think that that's the implications here. Um, again, when we're talking about the, the kingdom of heaven, when we're talking about all of the things and the promises of God, never within the scriptures are we exhorted to take these things or to seize upon these things. No, it's a gift that's given. It's the grace of God. Again, to try to to take from this verse and and build up some type of an attitude that we're supposed to have, that we're to seize the things of God, I think is a stretch beyond what the text is saying. In fact, that particular way of reading it has has given license to some, well, let's let's be real, some heresy within the church. Uh, Namely, the, the name it and claim it movement where, yes, there are promises, and they're there for you, but you've got to name those things and claim those things and seize those things. That's not the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is that we humble ourselves in the presence of Almighty God, and we receive what God gives. We don't take things by force. There are some that will take this verse and try to extrapolate out the justification of some type of, of militant reaction to persecution. You'll find, you'll find people that, that build those particular arguments off of this verse. Again, it's important to take something that's complex like this and to keep it within the context of the narrative. Again, this is a great example where cherry-picking a verse uh, can, can lend to all kinds of confusion, and confusion that's often unwarranted. The context is clearly presented within the life and ministry of John the Baptist. You you go back up to the whole beginning of this. And and as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. Jesus gives us us a context, even by which this verse should be understood, being John the Baptist. And where is John? John is in prison. Why is he in prison? He stood for truth. He called out Herod for his adultery. And yes, in that sense, he is, John, practically speaking, suffering violence. He has been taken. He has been arrested. In fact, John's prognosis moving forward doesn't get any better. John will be executed not too long after Jesus makes this statement. He'll be beheaded off the whims of a drunken party. So when you look at this within the context of the flow of what Jesus is saying, again, look back at it, and from the days of John the Baptist until now. Again, I think that's important because is Jesus and what he's describing, is this something that continues today or was something particular to that moment in time? I would argue 
Again, what Jesus is saying, that from the days of John until this moment, what's going on? Well, he says, look at it. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Practically, that's easy to understand. John, the forerunner, suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. Again, reading into, Jesus is presenting this in a very negative sense. He's like, the kingdom of heaven is suffering violent, violence, and the violent are successful. And again, when you look at John, did John escape his persecution? No, he died. And Jesus, the ultimate demonstration of what the kingdom of heaven is, the king of heaven. Did Jesus suffer violence? Yes, we've had this whole progression within the text leading up into Matthew's narrative of Jesus beginning to face opposition and persecution, which only gets gnarlier, gnarlier moving forward. The opposition grows and it's greater. Does Jesus, the demonstration of the kingdom of heaven, is he immune to these things? No, not at all. In fact, Jesus will be succumbed to it. The violent will take him by force and they'll nail him to a tree. Again, I don't think we have to overthink or overcomplicate or read into a verse uh, that which isn't there. Again, I would much rather say, I don't know. That, that being said, within the context of the flow of John, it seems likely that Jesus is just affirming what's going on. The kingdom of heaven is suffering violence. There's a real opposition. And the violent, they take it by force. If you disagree with that take, you can Facebook me about it. Verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah, who is to come. He who has an ear, let him hear. Interesting that phrase in verse 15. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's a, it's, a, it's a refrain that Jesus will use frequently in the Gospels. In fact, eight times in the Gospels, Jesus will use this phrase to kind of hammer home a point. He who has an ear, let him hear. Don't be confused. Accept what I'm saying. Take it to heart. Grapple with it. He who has an ear, let him hear. Not just information to rattle around one's brain, but the application of one's heart. Eight times in the Gospels. Jesus will use this. He'll close a thought with this refrain. Most notably, in his letters to the churches, in Revelation 2 and 3, you will find this phrase repeated at the end of, of all seven letters. One additional time it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Eight times in the Gospels, eight times in the book of Revelation. Jesus will add in his letters, again writing to the church, which at this point doesn't exist. He will add, you know, he who has an ear, let him hear what? What the Spirit says to the churches, not just what Jesus has to say, but what the Holy Spirit is affirming as well. John. John is a prophet. Wasn't a reed moved by the swaying of society. John stood for truth, even if it cost him. John was not just a prophet, but he was a great prophet, the prophet of prophets. He was the forerunner of Jesus. Not been one born of women greater than John, Jesus says. And he's facing violence, an inescapable violence. Jesus says some wonderful things about John. Interestingly, John didn't hear any of these things. 
Again, the context established. Verse 7, as they departed. So Jesus answers John's inquiry. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? He answers it. This is what I'm doing. Don't be offended by it. Get over yourself, John. That's the word that John gets. Will he believe? And then he'll die for his faith. And as the disciples leave, Jesus turns to the multitudes and he has great things to say about John. Why didn't Jesus let John in on it? You know? Why didn't Jesus take the moment and say, hey guys, y'all just hang for a minute. Let me say some things about John that John needs to hear. But no. Jesus told John what he needed to hear. He challenged his faith. The application for us in that moment, in that season, in that situation, where we expect Jesus to work in one way and he doesn't. And he works in a different way. And then we're bummed out about it. And we begin to doubt, Jesus, are you really who you say you are? When we have those expectations and it falls short, Jesus will tell us what we need to hear, but never doubt Jesus' perspective of us. Jesus has great things to say about John. He didn't doubt John. He didn't throw John under the bus. In those moments that, that you might doubt Jesus, please know he doesn't doubt you. He loves you, and he's proud of you, and he cares for you. John would not be filled in until after he finished his race. And Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 16, but, and Jesus here kind of pivots to the audience here. To what shall I like in this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. Jesus Again, contrasting this society, this culture, this generation with John. John was unshaken, but you guys are playing games. I mean, this is a heavy statement. You guys are like children in the marketplaces. The adults are busy buying groceries, and you're just kids. You're playing around. You are succumb to the whims. You play marriage, and then you play funeral. You don't know what you're doing, but you're just playing around. You're not serious at all. Verse 18, for John came, neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus saying some heavy things here to the, the multitude that's gathered. Again, at affirming John. He's saying, you guys... You are, the, you are a fickle group of people. Sent John to you. And John was a pious man, a righteous man. He was a teetotaler kind of a guy. And what did you guys do? You said he had a demon. You rejected him. And now the Son of Man has come. And what do you say of him? Well, I'm different than John. And you call me a glutton and a wine-bibber. It's interesting, and again, working kind of within the lines of what Jesus is saying, it is provocative, isn't it? The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber. You know, you can't make the accusation 
of gluttony or literally of being a wino, a wine-bibber, uh, if you were a teetotaler. And I know that's going to ruffle some Southern Baptist feathers, um, but Jesus is affirming, I came eating and drinking. John didn't. You said he had a demon. I did. And you accused me of, of, of sin, of sinful behavior, of being a friend of tax collectors and, and sinners. Again, such an accusation can't be made if Jesus was a strict teetotaler, which means he, he ate and drank, and he indeed hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus came up with a bit of a different approach than John the Baptist did. That being said, the accusation is unfounded, for we know within Scripture that, that gluttony is a sin, and we also know that, that alcoholism is a sin. Drinking too much, being intoxicated is a sin. In fact, I'm going to get in trouble. But you're going to run into, uh, every, time, every time you find the biblical um, exhortation to not drink too much, it's always also within the context of not eating too much. Like the Bible seems to be as serious about, about gluttony as, a, as alcoholism, um, which becomes very ironic when you have a lot of fat pastors rail against alcohol from the pulpit. And it's like, you're a glutton. Like, not to say that you're not making a point, that there's dangers within alcohol, but there's also dangers within being fat. You're the temple of the living God. You're to take care of yourself. Again, something I would, was not very good at and, until I almost died, and I uh, incorporated the death diet and lost the amount of weight that I needed to to be healthier. But they come to Jesus, and they're saying, you're a glutton, a wino. Again, not founded, Jesus. Jesus liked to eat. And I kind of like that about Jesus. Jesus enjoyed food. Like, you know the guy likes food and good wine. First miracle, changing water into good wine. Not bad wine, good wine, where everyone's shocked about it. Like, you know you got to be into food, and drink when you tell your followers, guys, I'm going away, but I'm going to give you this thing. You need to do it every time you gather in remembrance of me, and you decide to pick bread and wine. Like, you know, when you have bread and wine, you think of me. Like, you know you're a guy that's into that. And the first thing we do to heaven is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus says, I'm going to abstain from wine until the kingdom but in the kingdom, we'll be married. Again, provocative, interesting. But in its application, Jesus is like, you guys, you didn't understand who John was. And you don't understand me either. You didn't understand the mission of John. You don't understand my mission. I came to, to reach the lost. I came to rub shoulders with the down and outers. Again, Jesus, when you look through Scripture, Jesus was a partier, man. He goes to a lot of parties. Interesting, though, every party he went to changed. It was transformed. That Jesus elevated what was happening and wasn't submissive to it. He says, wisdom is justified by her children. 
You want to judge John, look at her children. You want to judge me, look at what's yielded, what's produced. Verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, and again, Capernaum was his headquarters, who are exalted to heaven. The Messiah was in their midst. You'll be brought down to Hades, or literally, you'll be brought to hell. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and the day of judgment than for you. And don't minimize the implications of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, in the midst of the people, ministering to the people, performing mighty works amongst the people, not just teaching the people about the kingdom, showing them the kingdom, demonstrating the heart of God. Jesus in their midst. Again, what he told John, causing the blind to see and the lame to walk and lepers are being cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached, demon-possessed people are being liberated. Incredible things are happening in their midst, all validating what he's saying. They could see it for themselves. Unique to human history, God was in their midst, physically, at work. And Jesus, he rebukes them. He's saying, you have me here, you can see with your own eyes all that I'm doing, and yet you refuse to repent. And as a result of that, other cities in the past, who did not have the same type of luxury, the same type of revelation, it's going to be stricter in judgment for you than for them. You see, Jesus is establishing an important principle. And that is the fact that with revelation comes responsibility. Within judgment itself, judgment is always tiered. God is just. God is fair. As a result, God's hand when it comes to, to judgment is always even. It's always applicable. God holds us accountable to what we know and what we've done. Lots of revelation, greater responsibility, stricter judgment. Less revelation, still judgment, tempered accordingly. Again, if these cities, Sodom, he invokes Sodom. If I had come to Sodom and done in Sodom what I'm doing in you, they would have repented. Incredible. But you aren't. And as a result, I will hold you to a greater accountability because you have not acted, though you have been given great privilege. Now, the application for us is pretty radical, honestly, because we have been given an incredible amount of revelation. But God will hold us accountable to the amount of revelation that we have. Greater revelation, greater accountability, greater judgment. Again, it's provocative. But the most dangerous place that a person can be, 
is at church. Seriously. Especially if it's a church that's teaching the Bible. That's relaying the revelation of God. Church is a dangerous place for someone to be that isn't going to have an ear to hear what Jesus is saying, repent and act accordingly. Why? Because you're getting greater and greater revelation you're not responding to, which means that you're just upping the ante with the amount of accountability that will be determined. Again, if you're not interested in heaven, don't come to church. Because the more you come to church, the worse your hell will be. Whoa. What? Well, not my words. This is what Jesus is saying. In fact, if you're like really determined to be your own God and do your own thing, you should stay as far away from Christianity and the Bible and, and, and a Bible teaching church as possible. I say that just as, as I don't want your hell to be any worse than it has to be. I'm just saying out of kindness. Again, God's word goes forth. It doesn't return void. Greater revelation, greater accountability, greater judgment for those that refuse to hear, refuse to respond. There's also this implication within the text that there is a, a, a tearing of judgment itself, which again, I, I find to be consistent with the nature of God and also encouraging. You know, people will often will often say, well, so you're saying that, 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 that I'm going to receive the same judgment as someone like Hitler. Yeah, Hitler always gets thrown around when you're trying to make an extreme illustration, you know? It's like, well, I'm not Hitler. I didn't, I didn't gas a bunch of Jews, you know? How could God be just and punish me the same? Well, Jesus is saying that, that, it, that you won't be punished the same, in fact that you'll be punished within accordance of how you've responded to revelation and your works. Think of it within a capacity, the capacity for, for judgment. Greater capacity, greater judgment. Think of it as a glass. You, you have a glass and you, you can fill up the glass. That's as, as full as it can get. Greater the glass, greater the amount of water. Greater the revelation, greater capacity, greater judgment. The flip side can be said, I think, in regards to heaven. That there's a capacity of, of our joy. You will enjoy heaven. Will everyone enjoy heaven equally? I don't think we'll be comparing. I don't think we'll know. I think it'll be awesome for you. But your capacity for the enjoyment will be determined upon following Jesus. And making certain decisions and accepting all that, that, that he has. Again, the justice of God, the proportionality. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and he said, now, <laughs> it's kind of odd. <clears throat> Jesus answered, did you see a question? <laughs> there, there's no question within the text. So Jesus is, is answering a hypothetical, or, or, or something that's happening outside of our own earshot. In fact, we're going to find a prayer of Jesus. So he's communing, he's interacting with his father. He answers his father. And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent 
and have revealed them to babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. I thank you, Father. What does Jesus thank the Lord concerning? You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, but you have revealed them to babes. And within this, Jesus is, is, is setting up a contrast between two different groups of people, between people that will hear and receive. He describes them as babes. And that's an attitude of the heart. A babe is someone that, that understands their dependency. A babe is humble. A babe can be selfish, it's true. But a babe, there's something lowly and simple. And the contrast of, of, of this other individual that he's describing, which he describes as, as the wise and the prudent, the haughty, the person that knows it all. Jesus says, when it comes to this judgment, when it comes to these things that I'm discussing, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden it from some, but you've revealed it to others. And we're told in Scripture that God always resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And within this, this prayer that Jesus prays for us to hear, there should be a checking of our own attitude to be a babe, to be simple, to receive. Jesus says in verse 27, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Can you imagine being in this particular scene, hearing Jesus make this particular statement? I mean, you run across something like this, and, and you have to reach one of two conclusions about Jesus. Either he is really who he says he is, or he's nuts. Like, he's either who he is, or he's off his rocker. Because what is he saying? He's saying, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. He's like, I'm the only one that knows God, and God's the only one that really knows me. It's like, well, that's a little presumptuous. He's either right or he's crazy. Now, if he's right, there's some implications. And the implications are that Jesus is affirming an, an exclusivity when it comes to the presence of God. Jesus says, no one knows the Father but the Son. No one has access. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. People will say, in, in, our, in our world, well, you know, I just, I just can't accept that exclusive message that Jesus is the only way to God. What an arrogant statement. In fact, I, I, I tend to think that it's sincerity that matters most. And if your path goes through Muhammad, as long as you're sincere about it, or through Buddha, as long as you're sincere about it, that all, all these paths ultimately end up at God. Well, not according to what Jesus said. But let's play with that thought for a moment. Because I don't necessarily disagree. I do think all paths lead to God. That's not the question. It's what happens then. Whatever road you want to take, you go for it. It'll, it'll bring you to the, the throne of God. But what happens next 
is going to be dependent upon one criteria, Jesus, and whether or not you knew him. Jesus says to some that will say, Lord, Lord, but we did this in your name and we did that. He'll say, depart, why? I never knew you. It's not depart because you didn't do A, B, and C. It's, no, I just, I don't have a relationship with you. I don't know you. Again, all paths might lead to God, but there's only one path that leads to heaven and forgiveness and restoration and healing. And that's through Jesus and Jesus alone. Again, he's either telling the truth or he's a lunatic. And he's a liar. You have to make that decision on your own. All things, Jesus declares, have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, again, challenging statement. Because Jesus is saying, the Father knows me, I know the Father. No one can know the Father without knowing me. But no one can know me unless I let them. That's what he's saying. Unless I will it. Now, does this speak of election? Well, sure. Does it speak to predestination? Sure. Does it exclude you? No, not at all. In fact, I would make the argument that the Son wills all, that he reveals himself to all. In fact, verse 28, Jesus then declares in that context, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Only the Father knows the Son, only the Son knows the Father, and the only people that can know the Son are those that I will. That being said, come all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This, the dual application, the the labor, speaks of a self-imposed work. It's the expectations we set upon ourselves. It's, It's our trying, our striving, our working, our earning. You are a brutal taskmaster on yourself. But not only do we place labor upon uh, ourselves individually, but then come those who are heavy laden. That speaks of of a labor that's placed upon people, independent of of your decisions. And and that's true. We we find that within the world. We have our expectations, which are heavy, and then we have the expectations of others. We have our labor, but then we have what's, what's required or demanded of us. And Jesus is like, are you tired? And if you are, of what you put on yourselves, or what other people put on you, what religion heaps on you, the expectations of this or that, if you are tired, come to me. Why? Because I will give you rest. And, and then Jesus describes what this rest looks like. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you. Now, we don't exactly live in in an agricultural uh, society. A yoke, 
A, a yoke was a specific tool, of an important tool, uh, that was used um, to bridge together two oxen or animals pulling a plow. It was a yoke. It was wooden. It was specifically, especially crafted to serve the specific job. Um, interesting, Jesus doesn't say, uh, come to me, I will give you rest, and your rest is idleness. No, no. Jesus is saying, this world presents a yoke, and it's labor, and it's heavy laden, but I will give you rest if you will yoke yourself to me. Because my yoke Learn from me. I'm gentle, lowly in heart. You will find rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, there's nothing more frustrating in this world. And I think the fellows are going to probably identify with this a little bit more than the ladies, but, but you'll get it. There's nothing worse than having a task that must be done and you don't have the right tool to accomplish the task. Or your tool doesn't work right. I got to cut down a tree and my chainsaw is dull and it doesn't work and it chokes out and it's frustrating. Like there's nothing, having a task where you don't feel equipped for the task is so maddening. And that's what the world is like. We're constantly running against a wall. We're constantly working against forces that seemingly are always working against us. And it's tiring, it's a burden, it's labor to be heavy laden. And yet Jesus is like, there's a better way to live. Yoke yourself to me. And if you yoke yourself to me, I'm not saying life won't be easy, but there will be this rest. I'm gentle. I'm lowly. My yoke, it's still a yoke, but it's easy and it's light. You know, when we talk about liberty, we talk about freedom within our society. <clears throat> There's a bit of a misnomer. When we think of true freedom, true liberty, we always place it within the context of freedom from authority. I'm free from authority. And, and subsequently, accountability, responsibility, etc. I'm free. I can do what I want, and, and I, don't have to, I don't have to mind. When the Bible talks about liberty, and we view liberty and freedom within kind of this Western idea, it's really wrong. Like nobody in the first century would ever think of freedom and liberty as, as the liberation from authority. The majority of the world is enslaved to Rome. Instead, when the Bible talks about freedom and liberty, it's, it's not freedom from authority, it's the freedom and liberty to choose the one in which you'll, you'll be placed under. It's to choose a master. That's freedom. It's not freedom from a master. It's the freedom to choose which master you'll serve. That's liberty. That's freedom. It's not that Christ liberates you from authority. Christ provides a different authority than what the world does. You're not really free. I'm free. No, you're not. If, if we're being honest, I'm my own man. Well, let's take a look at your credit card balance. You're actually enslaved to Capital One. And if you don't pay it off, they'll come after your wife. Like, are you free? Really free? No, I got a 30-year mortgage. I'm not free. I got to pay that mortgage. And I, I've got to make a living. Free. I'm my own man. No, you're not. 
You, every, Bob Dylan had it right. Everybody serves somebody. It's true. And within the Christianity, it's not the freedom from authority. Jesus is like, I will be a better authority. There's two different yokes. You can yoke yourself to the world and be burdened and heavy laden, or you can yoke yourself to me and walk as you were created to. Who will you serve, yourself or me? Who do you want as a master, yourself or me? Who do you want on the throne? There's no one better than me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in the next chapter, he'll begin to contrast what his yoke looks like in comparison to the oppressive yoke of religion and religious expectation. So Father, Lord, we just let that ring. May we have ears to hear what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are done a few minutes early. Enjoy your lunch. May you be filled with God's spirit. May you abide in his grace. If you have any problems with verse 12, Larry will be available <laughs> after the service uh, to answer your inquiries. Again, may the Lord bless you. Walk in his grace. His yoke is easy. It really is. And if you don't believe me, just try it. Try it out. Give it a test drive. I don't think you'll be disappointed. You're dismissed.